Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Economic and Business History Channel. My name is Paula de la Cruz Fernandez, and I'm a host on this channel. Today I talk to Dr. Victoria Basualdo, who is a researcher at the Argentine National Scientific Council, CONICET, and at the area of economics and technology of the Facultad Latinoamericana de Ciencias Sociales, FLAXO, and also professor in the Political Economy Master's Degree Program at FLAXO, Argentina. She specializes in contemporary economic and labor history with a special focus on structural changes and the transformations of trade union organizations in Argentina and Latin America. She authored several chapters and articles on this on the issue of cor- of corporate responsibility in human and um, in human rights violations, and was one of the coordinators of the book um, Res- Responsabilidad Empresarial en Delitos de Lesa Humanidad, Represión a Trabajadores Durante el Terrorismo de Estado in 2015. And we are also joined by Dr. Marcelo Buccelli, Associate Professor of Business Administration at the GIS College of Business, at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in the United States. His research focuses on the political economy of multinational corporations in Latin America, uh, the theoretical and methodological approaches to, to the study of the relationship between firms and states in a historical perspective, and also he studies business groups. Both uh, Victoria and Marcelo, along with Hartmut, Hartmut Berthoff, is, uh, who is the director of the Institute for Economic and Social History at the University of Göttingen in Germany, are um, the editors of the new book, Big Business and Dictatorships in Latin America, a transnational history of profits and repression published by Palgrave in 2021. Uh, this book, which we are uh, talking about today, uh, is an edited collection that includes the works of um, 19 researchers on the history of relations and workings between businesses and authoritarian regimes in Latin America. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much. Thank you, Paula, for the invitation. I um, already introduced you, but uh, it would be great if you tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit more about your professional um, trajectory or career. Well, uh, it's uh, it's really great to be here. Uh, it's uh, it's a pity that Hartmut cannot join us uh, because the three of us combine, I think, uh, very very interesting trajectories to, to put together. In my case, I'm a labor historian, so I'm uh, focused primarily on the history of the working class in Argentina and Latin America, and the changes of labor relations, also in relationship with technology and uh, and different uh, processes of, of transformation. No? So uh, in this book, it was very interesting for me to join Marcelo and Hartmut, who were mainly focused on business uh, history and uh, who looked at the issue from a different perspective. So Marcelo, you can tell more about that. All right, and um, yeah, as Paula mentioned, uh, I'm in um, in business history mainly, and uh, again, I mean the the combination of interests uh, was uh, crucial for the um, successful um, creation of this book. 
I have been studying Latin America for a while, and I have focused mostly on uh, multinational corporations and their political strategies. But I have never touched uh, this particular uh, subject. So this is uh, what I've been doing so far, and um, and this is kind of like the natural next stage in my research. So we can start with how this project came about. Uh... In the introduction, you explained that this book is the result of a meeting in Germany in two, in 2016, um, where you discussed on corporations and authoritarian regimes. Can you tell us a bit more about how you, um, along with uh, Prof Professor um, Berhoff, uh, came to coordinate this effort together? Yeah, uh, well, this is uh, closely related to one aspect that I didn't mention before about my work which is the relationship between research and uh, the, the judiciary processes. Uh, for me, the Göttingen Congress was very interesting because it was trying to tackle this topic that the book tackles, uh, which is not uh, very widely uh, analyzed for Latin America, which is the role of business in dictatorships. I focused on this uh, dictatorships during the Cold War period in Latin America and particularly in Argentina. And so the idea to join people from different parts of the world to discuss this, I think it was the main uh, concern, the, the case of Volkswagen Brazil, uh, that uh, attracted a lot of attention because, of course, Volkswagen has a long history in terms of trying to come to terms with, uh, with their past, with the involvement of uh, of this company in, with authoritarian regimes and particularly the Nazi, the Nazi Germany. So uh, this Congress was trying to build bridges and to connect this uh, Nazi historiography, the, the, the historiography about the Nazi period in Germany with the analysis of the role that companies played in dictatorships in the Cold War period in Latin America. So for me, being involved not only in, uh, in history research, but also in ways in which we can deal with that in terms of policy and in terms of, of, of the process of truth and justice in Latin America was very, very, very interesting. And I think it was a, a, a major step in, in making this book possible. And uh, <clears throat> adding to what Victoria just mentioned, uh, the, the, um, the meeting in Germany was the result of an initiative of uh, another scholar, a, a German scholar called Manfred Grieger, who was the official Volkswagen historian. And he was kind of like uh, um, part of this uh, whole um, I mean, yeah, a number of historians working for um, for German corporations who are trying to come uh, to terms with their past. I mean, uh, with the with the Nazi regime. Now, um, one um, sad aspect about uh, the meeting is that even though uh, a Professor Grieger counted with a lot of support from Volkswagen for the meeting, later on, a few months later, um, he was um, he had to leave Volkswagen because the firm didn't like some of his 
these opinions and findings. So it showed uh, the limits, even for corporations that are willing to open and be uh, their past and be more transparent with their past. I mean, there is a limit for that. But uh, this was the first step. Hartmut Berghoff is a world authority on uh, business history of Nazi Germany. So this was uh, a great combination. And uh, not only that, but uh, in the meeting we had, and in the book as well, uh, we had the presence of several young scholars uh, from Germany who are using... um, archives that uh, Latin American historians have not explored much and that have opened uh, new ways of uh, looking at the relationship between um, authoritarian regimes and um, big corporations in the continent. So let's let's go into the book. And uh, this connects with what you were saying, that you lay out uh, nicely in the, in, the inter- in the introduction, that in the case of Nazi Germany, um, historians, even though there are limitations, right, um, we do know a great deal about uh, about the arrangements and and also the limitations of doing business under authoritarian regimes. Um, so these two issues connected, business and authoritarianism, is uh, are also the frame that connects Latin American di- dictatorships, European dictatorships, and, and there are a couple of other mentions in the, in your book, um, Egypt, South Africa. So this is the transnational frame, right? Uh, so what do readers and the public should know about how corporations, big corporations in Latin America uh, had a role in authoritarianism? How did they negotiate operations? How did they adapt it? Um, uh, kind of and sometimes even upheld dictatorial regimes. Uh, how? What is the big um, kind of conclusion of of the book? I think for before going to the conclusions, I think that it's very interesting to to look at the scope that we had in the book, because I think it talks a little bit about how we could conclude a couple of things over there. Um, in the book, we could include uh, three pieces on Brazil. Uh, three on Argentina, a piece on Uruguay, uh, two pieces on Chile, uh, one on Peru, one on Colombia, um, one very interesting piece by Marcelo on on Central America, and one piece trying to think about the financial sector in Argentina, Brazil, Chile, and Uruguay. So um, when talking about conclusions, I think we we should... um, say that the first step that I would uh, try to emphasize uh, regarding the book is that we had a quite a quite a big scope over there um, and we could contemplate a number of aspects both combining um, national overviews and general perspectives and at the same time particular cases no so we combine in the book the two main things trying to understand how the relationship between military regimes and companies was in each of the cases, but at the same time, specific case studies about companies and economic sectors that illustrate some of the things. So I would say that uh, this is the basis on which uh, we can uh, talk a little bit about conclusions. And what we see is this combination exactly. First, that this is a very important topic. I mean, when you talk about dictatorships in Latin America in the Cold War, you cannot omit the role of business, of the business community and business sectors in these dictatorships. These are not only military dictatorships, but in many ways, uh, 
intellectual, ideological, but also very much institutional participation of business uh, uh, figures or leaders in uh, policy making, and at the same time, at the same time, uh, business relationships, uh, profits that uh, business uh, business sectors and different companies uh, earned during the dictatorships is a, is an issue that you have to take into account. And at the same time, we saw that you have different time frameworks in these countries, uh, because I was mentioning different countries. And for example, the case of, of Colombia is analyzed for the for the 50s. It's not the same, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s, no? Uh, the book has a very wide scope over there. So uh, we, can, we can talk about different time frames. Uh, it's not the same, the second uh, stage of import substitution industrialization in Latin America that lasted until the 1970s, that uh, the period of great transformation and the transition from Fordism to, uh, to post-Fordism in the 60s and 80s, 70s and 80s. No? So um, what I would say is that uh, the book confirms the key importance of, the, of, the, of, of studying business when analyzing dictatorships. It proves several ways in which business supported these regimes provided funding, provided personnel, and uh, established different kind of relationships with each of these military uh, regimes. But at the same time, it proves the necessity of studying very complex and particular case studies. For example, in Chile, we uh, know that there has been a very, very acute transformation in terms of economic policy and a very drastic transformation of the role of business and labor over there. This was uh, also the case in Argentina, but with a mm, repressive policy that uh, had a different outlook. Now the disappearances and the number of disappeared and, and the way repression was uh, deployed was different. And it was different than in Brazil, where the industrial development was not as uh, severely interrupted as in the other cases. So I think the book uh, wants to open a, a door, but definitely established uh, the importance of, of this topic uh, from this point onwards. And if I may add to <coughs> Victoria's point, um, but basically what we find is there was certainly uh, a level of um, shared interests uh, between many of the dictatorships in Latin America during the Cold War and big businesses, but uh, the the but there was. Um, the, this was not a homogeneous uh, situation. I mean, uh, we all know that uh, Pinochet in Chile, for example, opened the markets uh, to the, to the, yeah, I mean, uh, opened the markets and uh, to competition with the um, countries in the rest of the world. But uh, we don't find the same thing as Victoria mentioned uh, for Brazil or another or the chapter of Uruguay uh, shows as well. And uh, well, the elites are not the same in each uh, country, and uh, therefore pressure for different types of uh, policies. Now, another thing that uh, we need to remember from, I mean, uh, one of the lessons of this book is that uh, usually we focused way too much on American corporations in Latin America when it comes to right-wing uh, 
um, military regimes and uh, big corporations. Uh, the book brings here the role of uh, German corporations, for example, the role of uh, German foreign policy and uh, and the relationships with uh, with um, with uh, with the military regimes in that area, and that opens another 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 perspective. And uh, there is a chapter that focuses on Canadian corporations. So it was not just uh, American corporations and the um, coincidences many American firms would have had with uh, with Washington, but also other types of corporations coming from other countries. And uh, the support came in many ways from loans, kind of like the more legal, if you will, a kind of uh, a, a type of support to those regimes, to the other extreme uh, that we find in several chapters of, uh, for example, the case of German corporations, allowing the military to use their facilities to uh, interrogate and to torture and disappear opponents of the regime. So we find a wide spectrum in terms of uh, not only the origin of the corporations that were supporting the regime, but also the type of outcomes that the corporations wanted from these military regimes and the type of actions that they took in order to support the regimes. Great. So, so why do we learn, for example, about um, what does it take to do business under under a dictatorship? What um, what do we learn about organization? Is it is well, is right wing anti communism pro deregulation best for business? <laughs> Could we? I mean, is that something we can say, or um, or what else? And what else can we learn? Well, I think it's a very interesting question. I would say that um, one main thing, uh, and, and I think it's connected with, with the different disciplines we are coming from too, and the dialogue that uh, sometimes is missing between business history and labor history, what we learned uh, is that even though there are different cases uh, in Latin America and you have uh, different countries and different elites, as Marcelo was saying, and different working classes also, um, the, um, um, the roles of labor movements are different. Uh, we we saw the concern of the labor uh, regarding the labor movement as a as a central issue in all of the cases. I mean, it's not only profits, but also there's a concern about labor rights that it's uh, very much present uh, in this uh, in, in in all of the cases that we saw. It's very interesting that we uh, could study in the book several automobile companies. Volkswagen, the case in Brazil, shows what you were referring to uh, in terms of, of support and uh, very public exp- expressions regarding uh, the, the joy of, 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 of the dictatorship for some business sectors. No, they were greeting the change. They were uh, even claiming that for this change to happen because labor rights were very much a concern over there. Now, the way in which they could restructure uh, some of the changes that were happening, and we see the same in Argentina with the case of Ford, for example, or with the case of Mercedes-Benz, also two major multinational uh, automobile companies that uh, were studied over there. The case of Ford in particular is very interesting in Argentina because it shows very um, various connections that you were asking about, no? At the same time, you say you see a very close relationship in terms of, of investment. Uh, Ford was a major provider for the Argentine dictatorship. 
we see also a very close uh, repressive connection, which was uh, quite a surprise when studying this case, because there was a concentration camp, a detention center within the premises of, of, of the Ford uh, company mm-hmm. uh, enterprise in Argentina, in Pacheco, in the province of Buenos Aires. So workers were held prisoners within the plant and they were transferred uh, to police headquarters and then to jails. No? So and the connection with this was very, very clear because they used uh, vehicles from the company. They received funding from the company, key information to detain the workers. And all this was the main subject of a, of a trial in Argentina. So these cases about major multinationals, both in Brazil and in Argentina, show uh, very clearly the different connections that we uh, found in the cases of the military and and business in in Latin America. And uh, for the question of whether somebody would say, okay, so it's uh, it's good for business to have a right-wing dictator. when when looking at this under the perspective of these firms, what we find is in the in the context that uh, I mean, at the Cold War context of those times, it looks like for most firms, the arrival of a right wing dictatorship was seen as um, as a relief, as uh, something that was stopping a movement that they felt was threatening uh, their property and the very system under which uh, they operated. Now, um, did they have to go? I mean, um, and now uh, when it comes to, to, to the profitability of the operations, uh, the chapter on the financial sector shows that uh, it was, I mean, for the financial sector I mean, um, of, the, of the Western world, it was uh, a good business to have these um, these. Uh, dictatorships in those countries. For the corporations that were operating in the field, again, the idea, I mean, the, the what uh, has transpired from the archives studied by the different authors here is the sense of uh, relief and that uh, they were kind of like uh, doing that should be done. I mean, they, I mean, I'm in a country, I'm cooperating with the government against illegal groups. So uh, whichever way it was justified, um, and, and, um, I mean, uh, this was what we're, they were doing. And it's interesting, I mean, they, again, the fact that some corporations come from countries that uh, are perceived in Latin America as less, I don't know, extreme in terms of their anti-communism, like West Germany or Canada. But, I mean, these were play, players also in the, in the Cold War. And uh, they found justifications to keep uh, supporting their firms uh, despite sometimes internal opposition, especially for the case of Germany. And in spite the fact, despite the fact that sometimes actual German citizens were killed by these uh, dictatorships. One thing that it, that surprised me um, of this book is that there's not a lot, there's not a lot of talking, I mean, not, not a lot of a study or um, analysis of nationalization. So, you know, these foreign companies don't become, I mean, not, not necessarily become uh, nationalized, which is what happened in other places, right, uh, with dictatorships. Because these guys were right-wing dictators. I mean, uh, they were defending a system of uh, markets. Now, let's remember, um, I mean, sometimes it depends. Uh, I mean, the, the military 
sometimes uh, we're more pragmatic than um, it's been uh, acknowledged in terms of, I mean, in terms of their ideology, they could shift, I mean, the policy also based on, um, on their own interests. I mean, a uh, Nationalization. I mean, we know that in Chile, Allende nationalized uh, the copper industry, and in the great wave of privatizations, Pinochet did not touch the copper industry. He was more like, okay, now I have my my business. I mean, or the business of the military, so I'm not giving this back to anybody. Mm-hmm. The American government did not care about Pinochet not giving this back, and actually, even the Chilean elite did not care. And uh, so, and uh, and uh, the chapter on Central America. That I wrote uh, also shows these uh, these uh, shifting uh, alliances sometimes uh, of the military dictators. I mean, when when it, I mean at some points these right wing guys ally themselves in Central America with the labor force against uh, foreign multinationals when the foreign multinationals were not providing them with economic security. So then, I mean, it's not totally ideology-driven, but but sometimes, I mean, these military dictators came to power because their predecessors were either expropriating or threatening to expropriate. Yeah, one 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 exception maybe because yeah, this is very very important to stress. Now all of the dictatorships that we studied here are uh, mostly right wing and um, very much uh, liberal in terms of of economic positions, with the exception of the case of Peru. Yes, uh, when where they studied two dictatorships, two stages, very different stages. And the first stage, uh, led by General Velasco Alvarado, Juan Velasco Alvarado, from 1968 to 75, had nationalizations and had a, a we could we could see as progressive of nationalistic um, measures. No, uh, that then changed in 75 when uh, there's another dictatorship very much aligned uh, with the rest of the continent. But I would say that some of what you were asking, Paula, uh, is related to this period of Velasco Alvarado, which is led by the military, which is a dictatorship, but at the same time uh, has a progressive and nationalistic uh, perspective. And in fact, Peru became uh, a land that received many of the exiles of other dictatorships in Latin America at the same time uh, in this period. And this changed in in, in mid 1970s uh, when a more right wing dictatorship took took power and uh, implemented uh, measures very much aligned with the rest. No, but even considering that they are mostly right wing dictatorships, we do have we do find different uh, economic policies applied over there, and I think this specificity and the need. Uh, to research and to contemplate specific cases and evolutions is very much confirmed uh, with that, what we were discussing about Brazil and differences with Uruguay and Chile and even the case of Central America, which is uh, quite different. Uh, We are talking about Latin America, but South America has uh, some patterns and some connections, for example, the Condor uh, plan and the uh, coordination of the military dictatorships at this time. And this is and the timing also is, is very much different from Central America. So we are dealing with a very complex and wide scenario to try to build generalizations about. 
And I'm glad that um, Victoria reminded us of um, yeah the chapter on Peru written by Martin Monsalve Sanati and Abel Puerta Larcón uh, that shows how uh, businesses adapted to the to the to the military dictatorship in uh, Peru that was a left wing dictatorship, but they also show that certain businesses were did not necessarily oppose that uh, dictatorship, partially in, in part because it was. It was not even also like a radical. I mean, um, I mean, it, it, it targeted certain industries, but not others, and uh, in a, in their expropriation policies. And this reflected also in the way the business um, community reacted to it. Right. No, this is really interesting, and that's what the transnational framework, um, where it helps. Right. It it doesn't have to be the same, but it helps us see how complex this. Um, this as in this process was um, so actually I, I was going to go back to this transnational uh, framework because there's another um, and you t- I, Victoria you talk in your in your chapter about it in your in your first chapter and also Carlos Junes and Tomas Sundurragas uh, on the on the chapter on Chile on how this ideology um, you know the dominant economic thought of the 70s 80s and 90s which is you know, on le- neoliberalism, which is different, for example, from what, let's say, you know, Franco Spain was, which is in the 50s and was very nationalistic. Yeah, I think it's very interesting what you were saying, Paula, because um, I do think that a- a- another conclusion about uh, this book is that we have to contemplate these different layers or dimensions. And is this way you can understand the connections between uh, the military dictatorships in the 70s in Latin America and this uh, neoconservatorism, this neocons uh, surge in the first world, no? And uh, Reagan and Thatcher and the, the, the changes that took place in the 80s and, and 90s, even. So there's a bridge over there, and I think it's connected with the idea that we are. Uh, focusing mainly on dictatorships, but not only. I mean, these periods uh, cannot be understood in isolation, but they have to be placed within uh, larger narratives. And uh, I think the uh, the changes in economic thought, uh, which is something Marcelo contributed a lot to in the introduction, and so he can pick it up uh, just uh, in, in, in a second. Uh, I think it's very interesting to see how... Uh, the transformations in economic thought and in economic policies have to be studied in the long run, no? And you have to connect this. So, uh, yeah, you were discussing uh, the the chapter uh, by Carlos Buneus and Tomas Urumburraga is very interesting. Uh, uh, it's one of the general perspectives that uh, allow to understand the case of Chile in, in, in depth. And they show, and the case in Argentina, we, we show too, uh, that you have to see how from the 50s and 60s there were think tanks and networks trying to figure out what to do with these Keynesian policies and these uh, import substitution policies that they were disagreeing with and the role of the state and how the dictatorships helped a lot introducing uh, these major intellectual figures and these uh, business, uh, their connections with, with business sectors too uh, into economic policy. And then you can understand the transformations, the very uh, strong transformations that took place 
for example, in Argentina and Chile, different from those in Brazil and Uruguay, for example, but you do see a trend towards neoliberalism and you see the role that, that these dictatorships play played in this, in this process. No? I think this is very interesting and it's important because uh, when you talk about dictatorships, it seems that you are talking, you are discussing only the role of the military, no? and you have to talk about the armed forces. And these books, this book brings about other uh, characters in this story, and they show that if you don't have funding and if you don't have support from key players in the in these economies and societies, it's very different. It's very difficult to to carry on uh, with such a project. Only with um, taking into account these characters and these other uh, very important leaders that uh, participated in this process, you understand. The magnitude and the and the uh, uh, depth of this process, I would say. Well, I think this summarized um, very well the main ideas, and uh, but again, yeah, the the heterogeneity of the processes is very is very important, and we cannot forget that uh, the military tended to be nationalist. And uh, I mean, they're usually seen as sellout, but at the same time, I mean, part of what they were doing was, uh, I mean, they were thinking, I mean, they, the way they sold this uh, project was that they were fighting a war against mm -hmm. a foreign supported um, uh, forces. And uh, yeah, there was a lot of corruption, of course, but I mean, uh, this is part of like the resources that they thought they needed for for this. And uh, again, as uh, the, the archives of some of our authors show, uh, the companies themselves felt that they were at the, in the front lines of this uh, Cold War. I, I, I saw, and we did talk about multinationals, but it's not only um, foreign companies working in Latin America or operating or uh, letting governments use their, their facilities to for forced labor and, and, and prisoners, but also uh, in the case of, of Brazil, for example, this construction company, the, it was operating abroad, right? And so how much um, how much do we care about the government or the country of origin when we let uh, companies come into the, come in, you know, uh, operate in our countries? Yeah, totally. I think um, what you were um, just talking about is the connections that we started to find. I think it's a very... This is a very um, important contribution of the book, which is trying to, to understand, not to compare, not to draw uh, general and definitive conclusions, because it's not the place of this book, which is trying to open a field. So that's why we are uh, tentative and we are very careful uh, with uh, generalizing. But I do think that this open, uh, opens, um, uh, I don't know, underlines the case uh, for the importance of connections in this, no? For example, uh, you don't think about the relationships between Brazil and Paraguay. And there are a lot of connections. I mean, not only they are neighbors, but Paraguay was very much influenced by Brazil. And, and there's an expansionism on the part of, of Brazil uh, towards Paraguay, which is uh, normally not seen. What you're saying about the chapter uh, about construction by Pedro Campos, which is a very, very interesting piece of research. And it opened a lot of, of of important uh, contributions about in groups such as Camargo or such as Odebrecht, well, which are very interesting today in Brazil, um, they show 
one major characteristic of some of the dictatorships of the region, which was the major infrastructure plans. No? And this is also illustrated by the by the dam, but the case of the dam, it, it, the Tucurui dam, uh, also in Brazil, also studied in the book, which I think uh, shows another phase of what Marcelo was saying. No, they have this nationalistic outlook. It's a very authoritarian nationalistic uh, uh, perspective that uh, gives a very subsidiary place to, to a labor movement and wants to control wants control over society as a whole, but big construction uh, works are a major topic that appeared and reappeared over there and that has to be taken into account. And I think it's a line of research that um, allows to see these connections that you see. No? Ford, of course, is a multinational company. Uh, we see the growth in Argentina and the benefits at this time, uh, but also in connection with the with its global scope as a company, no? and the same with Mercedes-Benz, and the same with, I don't know, the transformation of the copper industry in the period and the role of Madeco, studied by Joe Stillerman in the case of Chile. And there are a lot of connections, uh, I, I think, uh, between these processes that, cannot, that could not be explored before and that we, we are uh, making progress towards that. And one thing about the country of origin that uh, Paula was mentioning beforehand, uh, we know that in the last few years, there's been a lot of interest and even celebration of the so-called multi-Latinas, like these multinationals from Latin America. Uh, the book also reminds us that uh, some of these uh, multi-Latinas have their origins in uh, military or militaristic uh, projects. And uh, that for the dictatorships, I mean, these nationalistic dictatorships wanted and sometimes needed certain type of corporations to be really strong. I mean, the infrastructure, the aircraft, the computer industries, for example, in Brazil, the chapter on Chile, I mean, mentions also elements around uh, around the wine industry, how the, and, uh, and the copper industry as well. I mean, how uh, certain policies permitted the take off of these corporations when these countries decided to open themselves to the international competition. So uh, there is the story of the multi-Latinas has also this side uh, in many cases that needs to be taken into consideration. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, the uh, continuity of these businesses once you know the dictatorship is gone or there's another regime in, in place. And um, and actually to talk, you know, linking that to this um to the method of uh, network analysis, which is in, in a few chapters of, of the book, which I think is really interesting. But they show, you know, that about how these relationships of the business community, um, they are they are lasting and they are they kind of go beyond uh, ideology, they go beyond uh, maybe even um, uh, administrations, right? These social relationships more than profits is what it, it, it's maybe uh, sometimes what we should be looking at more than more than you know being profitable, for example. Exactly, there was a political project behind many of these many of these corporations. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit more about this this uh, network analysis um, methodology that uh, is uh, Chapter Six um, from business associations to business groups by. Um, by Martin, Martin Monsalves, Anati, and Abel Puerta. 
Alarcón, also the fin the financial, uh, the banking on the southern corn dictatorships, um, and uh, big business and bureaucratic authoritarianism in Uruguay, uh, they all have this uh, network analysis um, research, which which I thought was was really great to bring in. Yeah, I mean, this is something that. Um started being used for Latin American studies relatively recently. And uh, basically, I mean, with the type of sources that we can count on, um, that, I mean, it, it is possible through qualitative sources to create, uh, to conduct, sorry, this type of uh, analysis. And uh, this is particularly useful to see how the elite uh, connected itself with um, with the government or with other corporations, or how the elite also evolved and changed itself. I mean, uh, here we find, for example, for the case of uh, Peru, how these business associations eventually became um, business groups as part of a strategy to protect, uh, quote-unquote, themselves from the left-wing uh, military regime. And uh, in uh, in for the case of Uruguay, uh, the case, the chapter shows very, by Juan Bogliaccini and his associates, uh, the case shows clearly uh, why these connections allowed the, the Uruguayan industrial sector to survive throughout the, the dictatorship, in which, in a way, it got the quote-unquote good things of the dictatorship in terms of fighting against uh, the left without forcing them to open themselves to international competition. Yeah, and I think uh, it's very interesting uh, within the book the coexistence of different methodologies and sources. As uh, Marcelo was referring before, we have uh, some German authors that could access some of the business archives in Germany, uh, which is something that we generally do not have in Latin America. I mean, and this is very, this is something to underline. I mean, business archives in Latin America are not uh, widely open. Uh, in general, they are completely restricted, and particularly for the period of the dictatorship. So uh, we do have a combination of, of, of statisticals from states. Uh, we do have uh, the combination of, of, of published sources, the sources coming from business confederations in Latin America, unions. We have trade union archives that have been used uh, as a source. We have public uh, archives in Argentina, for example, there are intelligence archives from Argentina, but also some uh, other archives, such as the NSA, the National Secu Security Archives in the U.S., have been a source for some of the pieces. Um, so we ha we do have a, a methodological strategy to try to tackle which, with uh, what in Latin America is a very serious problem today, which is that business do not open their, their archives. So uh, now would be also a good, a good moment to ask for companies to release uh, access to historians, because I think it's there in these organic archives with correspondence and memos, internal memos, and uh, the folders of, of, the, of, of each of the employees and a lot of, of, of different files regarding uh, the functioning of the, of the business in Latin America. They are very valuable sources that are sometimes available in the in the main um, uh, headquarters in Germany or in the U.S. Sometimes not completely available for this period, but are lacking for this field. And and this is, if I may add again, uh, regarding the the. Um, 
network analysis, this is a wonderful way by which researchers can overcome this last uh, this um, lack of um, archival access. Because, I mean, uh, some of these um, network analysis can be conducted with information that can be taken from directories, from um, um, annual reports, from, I mean, relatively open, I mean, even from newspapers. Like, I mean, who's the member of this club? Who's the cousin of this person? And uh, this is, uh, I mean, these are sources that, uh, again, can, uh, um, I mean, these uh, authors very skillfully used as a way to overcome also the lack of other types of uh, internal documentation. I always end my interviews talking about the research process. And and I think your book, I mean, this book, all the authors in your book um, show how to get to business through different um, sources that are that are not necessarily um, business records because they are closed, correctly. I mean, and so um, I wonder if if part of the corporate responsibility programs that they that corporations have uh, should include, you know, uh, archives transparency. <laughs> I think it should be decisive. I, I think it, it's very necessary. I would say that also in some of the cases, the processes related to the memory, truth, and justice uh, processes in each of the countries, yes, judiciary uh, sources in Argentina, for example, some of the companies have been forced to hand over their their papers uh, uh, just because they are accused of having participated in the dictatorship, so they have to provide some evidence regarding that. And some of the sources we have come from this, from the judiciary to force, uh, forcing uh, companies to hand over their papers. I think it would be a very interesting issue to try to, to analyze the issue of business and human rights, having uh, taking into account the issue of history. I mean, the, the process does not start right now. It's not from now onwards, but we do have a history that has to be dealt with. So I would I would say that your proposal, Paula, uh, of including this request is uh, not only very very bright but but urgent as well. But at the same time, I mean, I don't want to be the spoiler here. Let's remember also the effort was made in Germany, and it looked like a model to follow until some corporations started thinking, okay, you guys, you historians, are going way too far. Uh, so um, sometimes, I mean, it's uh, also, I mean, when they're forced to open their archives be because of some um, judicial order, I guess, I mean, it's more trustworthy. I mean, whatever whatever the researcher is going to find. I, I, I was reminded again to the chapter on uh, construction companies in, in Brazil by Pedro Enrique Pedreira Campos, because... You know, I, I just think about this huge infrastructure um, projects, and those are already, you know, part of our sources, right? I mean, these sources were these um, uh, cons- this infrastructure pro- yeah, projects were built under under very uh, specific circumstances and political um, context that that should be told. Yeah, and they are related to ecological problems, uh, dealing with uh, original communities that were there and in many cases were displaced and in many cases were repressed to build these uh, these giant infrastructure works. 
So uh, the, you do have uh, economic and social transformation should be analyzed uh, in connection with repressive policies and uh, political aspects. Now, when you think about dictatorships, it's very important to think about all these social forces coming together and, of course, with specific constellations and relations. And this is something that we uh, cannot stress enough. No, it's a, you do have to, to do your research very carefully and specifically, uh, but taking into account as many variables and dimensions as possible, I think. Um, and this was a, a, very, a very important aim of this book. Well, um, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank no, you, Paula. Thank you. thank you for the invitation. It's been a pleasure. Um, thank you to our um, listeners of the New Books Network. This is the Economic and Business History Channel, and my name is Paula de la Cruz Fernandez, and I hope you listen to this channel again. Thank you.